1: Many Christians in their thirties and forties grew up reading Frank Peretti's hugely popular novel This Present Darkness, which is a kind of spy thriller whose character list is composed of angels and demons. Its descriptions of spiritual warfare are vivid and concrete, but there's something shallow about them, as if Hollywood blockbusters had unwittingly tapped into the deepest truths about good and evil in our universe. It's no wonder that a lot of us have trouble believing in Satan and his host of demons as we get older. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles, Richard Beck, says that we may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. In his latest book, Reviving Old Scratch, he argues that Christians of both liberal and conservative inclinations would be wise to revise their belief or non-belief in demons. Dr. Beck is professor of philosophy at Abilene Christian University, and I'm delighted that Reviving Old Scratch has brought him to Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thank you for coming on the show, Richard.
0: Oh, excited to be here.
1: I often begin these interviews by asking what led our guests to write about the topics they write about, but you answer that question in the book itself. You describe yourself as having had a chiefly intellectualized faith until you began teaching Bible classes at a prison. Can you talk about what you learned from the inmates there?
0: Well, yeah, I had a a real passion for social justice. I kind of describe myself as a liberal or progressive Christian, so social justice is a big deal. Um, for believers like me. And that passion drew me to the margins of my town, uh, to a prison, maximum security prison, north of Abilene, Texas, where I live, and to a mission church plant on the south side of our town in a very poor neighborhood. And But when I got drawn out there to those locations because of my passion for social justice, I, I bumped into a kind of a charismatic, kind of Pentecostal spirituality that really had a very robust conversation about demons and the devil, and I found myself at a, a bit of a loss to know what to do with that language because I had a lot of questions and skepticism about the relevance of that language for my own spiritual walk uh, for a variety of reasons. And so the book was uh, is, has a biographical narrative that goes through it about my attempt to um, revitalize or rehabilitate that conversation about spiritual warfare as it's described in some churches so I can um, be pastorally uh, present in those locations.
1: You mentioned the the mission church plant. You you go to Freedom Fellowship. Can you describe that group for our listeners?
0: Yeah, that's a it's a it's a church plant that's for, uh, started, started by my church. We worship on Wednesday evenings and uh, once a week or once a month on Saturdays, and we uh, serve a meal, and that's the main draw. Uh, lots of our neighbors in that area um, are homeless or very poor. Lots are dealing with addictions. Many are coming out of prison. They're trying to rehabilitate their, their lives after that, that journey. And, um, and afterwards, after that meal, you know, we had, have a time of uh, worship and prayer uh, and praise. And so the demographics of that community, are, it's a pretty grim story. Um, but inside that faith community, I discovered a very life-giving spirituality, despite what might be observed on the outside of that. So that's who the freedom community is.
1: I don't know what your denominational background is, but do you find that Charismatics and Pentecostals tend to take the devil more seriously than other groups?
0: Yeah, I grew up in the Churches of Christ, and we have had a very impoverished conversation about the Holy Spirit um, and spirituality in general. So I wasn't very equipped, beyond my academic skepticism about a lot of that language, um, uh, I my faith tradition didn't equip me very much uh, for that as well. And I, and I would definitely, I wouldn't say that the community at, at Freedom was capital P Pentecostal, but, but it's lowercase p Pentecostal in the sense that they just had a very enchanted worldview. They they, they saw um, their lives as um, being a battleground uh, between spiritual forces. And so, so I don't want to use, describe them as charismatics, but but that's the best adjective that I have for it, a very spirit-filled experience in their daily lives, and consequently um, reporting and describing um, spiritual antagonism in their lives, which they described as of demonic origin or um, due to Satan. And so, uh, yeah, that's – that. so I was not equipped – to, to, to interface with that. And a lot of it was my faith tradition, but a lot of it was just my own natural skepticism and concerns and worries about how they described um, spiritual warfare. And and to be honest, a, a lot of my concerns are, are still there. There, there, are, there are still aspects about the way um, I think the charismatic and Pentecostal tradition thinks about Satan and the devil. And, and you referenced Frank Peretti in the intro. I, I think that's the way they think about it, and I think there's lots of problems with it. And so beyond trying to rehabilitate my own thoughts about spiritual warfare, I still have some heavy concerns about the way it is tended to be talked about in Pentecostal charismatic circles that I think um, misses um, huge chunks of Scripture and also creates its own um, uh, problems uh, for spiritual formation.
1: Um, This is a little bit off topic in terms of the books. If you don't want to talk about it, just tell me. But I I see three three points here and i'd I'd like to know how you connect the dots so you have on the one hand people who are at the the relative bottom of the social ladder you have your prisoners you have the people at freedom fellowship on the other hand you have this more charismatic approach to to christianity and um the third point would be this belief in frank peretti style literal personal demons do you do you care to draw the lines there
0: you know, from a sociological perspective, I think those three things, three things, hang together a great deal. And when you look worldwide um, at where Christianity is thriving, it tends to be thriving in very marginalized contexts. In our, in America, it'll be amongst the poor, um, but worldwide, it'll be in the third world. And it seems that, at least statistically speaking, the, the vibrant centers of Christian growth in those locations tend to be characterized by very charismatic spirituality. Um, or Pentecostal spirituality. And so, again, as a liberal Christian, rattling around the back of my head is always the preferential option of the poor to try to see the gospel and what is described as good news through through their perspective. Um, And and so when they're describing their experiences with the idiom of the Frank uh, Peretti, spiritual warfare, I want to take it seriously. But I also don't want to shelf my skepticism Um, And not only just my skepticism um, about uh, the the believability of all of that and how it translates into my Western kind of academic context, but I also think there's a lot of dangers associated with that way of describing things. So I I want to be in a a location of tension with that language. I want to honor it, but I also want to rehabilitate it and bring it back from um, some – um, problematic location. So all that to say is, yes, I think there is a connection amongst them sociologically. That you see marginal communities tend to speak about their spiritualized um, a very pre-modern, you could call it, or enchanted um, a way of speaking. They just see the, they just see their life as a battleground between themselves and spiritual forces.
1: But of course, the Bible itself is pre-modern, so you don't want to just dismiss that, which you don't. Yeah, and I
0: think that. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. I think that's another I- irony about all of this is that when you, when you talk to liberal or progressive Christians, that thing they like, any, if they like anything about Christianity, they like Jesus. Um, um, they might not like the church, they might not like organized religion, but they just love the Jesus of the Gospels um, and the way he lifted up the oppressed and the way he stands up for the least of these. And yet, like you said, Jesus, all through the Gospels, is described as an exorcist. Um, who keenly describes his uh, fight uh, with the kingdom of God as as being as opposed um, or being opposed by the Satan. And so there's an irony to how progressive Christians are drawn to Jesus, and yet they find themselves oddly disconnected from the kind of central narrative or the central plot line of the conflict Jesus found himself in. The way he described the kingdom of God is in a conflict against the kingdom of Satan. Um, so yet again, there's another one of those disjoints, not just the disjoint between the you know, liberal academic struggling to connect with the spirituality of the margins, but also liberal progressive Christians struggling to just even connect with the Jesus of the Gospels. Um, and it's because they just lack a robust theology of spiritual warfare.
1: Well, and it's because all of us tend to reform Jesus into... Into our own image, right? We all we all want him to be concerned with the things we're concerned about, and he seems concerned with so many things in the Gospels that it's easy to to twist him.
0: Yeah, I talk about that. a uh, image of Thomas Jefferson. You know, Thomas Jefferson famously uh, cut out all the references of the supernatural in the Gospels and pasted the, the Gospels back together to create this, you know, very disenCHANTed moral vision of Jesus as a great moral teacher. And so I think we all play Thomas Jefferson, conservative, liberal, uh, across our different faith traditions, sniffing out or just reading over the parts of the, the Gospels that we just struggle struggle to uh, connect with. And so, yeah, what we're left with is that Jesus remade into our own image.
1: Well, tell me why Jesus as exorcist is so important to the Gospel, because you argue it's it's really central. Every Everything else in the Gospels flows out of his view of spiritual warfare to one degree or another.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Gospel accounts begins with that confrontation between Jesus and Satan on the mountain, uh, and it's a, it's a battle that they engage in for, you know, two, three years of his ministry. Um, the way I describe it in the book is, uh, I borrow a, a metaphor that C.S. Lewis used. And he talks about how um, the the gospel is the story about how the rightful king has landed in in disguise and is calling us to participate in the great campaign of sabotage. So it seems like when the gospel is open that the assumption of a narrative is that the world is bound over um, and held under uh, domination by dark forces so this is the crisp, what's called the Christus Victor paradigm um, from the Church Fathers, that the world, so Satan is described as the god of this world or the prince of this world. And you see that in the temptation narrative. Satan offers Jesus this deal. If he worships him, he will give them the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus rejects that offer and then begins a subversive, so that's that great campaign and sabotage that Lewis talks about. Jesus begins this kind of subversive from the grassroots up invasion of the world trying to establish the kingdom of god in a hostile territory and to me that's the narrative plot line of the gospels of the kingdom of god inserting itself in from the bottom up because it's an invasion of love it's not a domination from the top that satan offers jesus but it's an invasion from the bottom up through service through kindness through enemy love through self-donation um and if you and, and so to me the idea and so as Jesus moves through the Gospels. You see him uh, healing people, but also releasing them from the power of the devil. Um, Peter describes Jesus' ministry in Acts as he went about doing good and releasing those, healing all those under the power of the devil. Um, and so the reason why it's important to see Jesus as an exorcist is because it helps us understand that that as we move out into the world, we're going into a, a contested space, a, a space where people are um, held or, or dominated by dark, dark forces that are often unseen, and that liberation is what the kingdom of God is bringing to people in those contexts.
1: So it's not an either-or in terms of social institutions or spiritual forces, it's both-and.
0: Yeah, for some reason, I think when when we talk about these things, we, we are we're stubbornly forced into these dichotomies. It's got to be one or the other. Like pro- progressives and liberals, when they discuss evil in the world, progressives you know want to say that well, it's due to individuals making bad choices; they're evil people, and then and progressives want to bring in the social, cultural, systemic evils as if those two things are, are different, but they're all interconnected. And I think it's the same thing when we think about spiritual warfare, that conservatives have tended to over-spiritualize it, and to see it almost as exclusively—this is the Frank Peretti paradigm—almost exclusively about a spiritualized con- conflict that has nothing to do with political reality. On the other side, liberals and progressives tended to see the battle as wholly political with no spiritual or moral component um, at all in that, in that fight. And, and so and we're forced to choose between the two. And I think Jesus saw the whole thing as a gestalt, as an interconnected whole. And I think one of the great tragedies of the, of the modern church is how liberals and progressives have essentially split um, that into two, two separate battles and thus, neither side is well-equipped to see the whole dynamic in play that I think Jesus saw.
1: And one of the things I really like about this book is that you're willing to correct both sides, even though you come from the the liberal side. You Actually, I think you spend more time um, talking about why the liberal conception of spiritual warfare is faulty than you do about the conservative side. But you, you get both of them, and that's um, – it's very helpful because, because it, it, keeps, it keeps people reading it from being polarized.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I'm saying anything new to say that, that the whole liberal conservative fight within the church is really tiresome and really unhelpful. And so I, I kind of have a rule of thumb for myself that if I'm going to say anything, I'm going to say it to my people first. Um, I, I think you need to be a prophet to yourself first um, and speak truth to your people. And so, yeah, so I, 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 try to, I try to keep put everybody on the hook, because I do think people on both sides of, of, of the equation have, have missed important things. Um, and there's a lot of middle ground to be exploited if we, if we would just um, stop throwing bombs at each other and, and, and look and go back to Scripture and, and look at what Jesus was doing, because I think what Jesus does is difficult for all of us. I don't care where you stand In in the Christian landscape uh, Jesus is going to be a very prophetic Difficult figure for you He's going to be difficult in different ways For for conservatives and liberals But um, there's nothing particularly easy About what he's calling us to do
1: You point out that the political vision Of spiritual warfare favored by many liberal Christians Can easily lead us to dehumanize Our fellow human beings Why is that?
0: Well, what happens, I think, when liberals approach the issue of spiritual warfare, um, they they do what I call uh, um, this might be a bit silly, but it maybe it communicates. They perform what I call Scooby Dooification, <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and by that I mean, you know, in the early Scooby Doo episodes, if you've seen those, the, the kids go to a uh, a town and there's a, a spook or a ghost. Um, that is causing some havoc. Um, but as they investigate, they get skeptical, and then they eventually find that the ghost was really, you know, Mr. Jenkins, the corrupt banker. Yeah, the curator. So behind, it's always the museum curator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so and, and so, uh, liberals often do that. They find this spooky overlay of spiritual warfare too much, the Frank Peretti aspect. And so what they do is they want to strip that away, and they want to find a, a location of, you know, uh, economic greed or systemic evil—they want to locate the human side of the ledger, and I think there's some, some, an important aspect about that. I, I think there's some truth in there. But what happens when that? When you do that, when you reduce evil to the, a, a human moral drama, then you're tempted to see the the political fight as the as the you know the angels of light against the agents of darkness, the good guys against the bad guys. And, that, and the only way to make goodness arrive in the world is for the good guys to take power away from the bad guys. And, and that reduces to just a Nietzschean will to power. And I think that that's, and, and, and when that happens, when we, when we see ourselves as aggressively trying to take power away from bad people, you know, that's why the world has gone off track is because bad people are in charge and we have to take the power away from them to get control of that. I and mean, incidentally that is the exact temptation that Satan offered Jesus on the mountain. Yeah it is. Yeah, you can have power you can have power over the whole world to make the kingdom come. And Jesus Jesus um chooses something a little different. And and I I just find that a very powerful and potent message for liberal and progressive Christians who Um, often see social justice as the attempt to take power away from bad people to make the kingdom kingdom come. I do think injustice, Jesus is very concerned about it, but he deals with it in a very different way. All that to say is when we reduce um, spiritual warfare um, to the moral drama of human agents, it's very easy to see people who are in our way um, as the problem. And that that leads towards demonization. And that's just another irony that the book explores, how when we think we can get rid of the language of demons and the devil, uh, and get rid of that spiritual warfare language that, that would save us from demonizing people. But the exact opposite tends to happen. If, if all there are are other human beings in the fight, and they're our problem, then we're drawn in to demonization. So um, dehumanization is just a product of, of political struggle. Um, that, that whether or not you have spiritual warfare language or not, that temptation is always gonna be there. And I think the one of the unique things Jesus does in the Gospels is he gets dropped right into the middle of that struggle between the Jews and the Roman occupiers. And and, and he deflects the battle away from the Romans towards the Satan, so that enemy love can foe. He can say, Love your enemies, because he sees both Romans and Jews trapped in a much larger dynamic of violence um, that he names the Satan. And, 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 and so in that way, I think spiritual warfare can lead us towards becoming a more peaceable people.
1: It's a little like um, there's a feminist slogan that patriarchy hurts men as much as it hurts women. Yeah. Yeah, this this idea that the, so, pe- the people who are in power are damaged by the very power they hold.
0: Oh, exactly, yeah. And so patriarchy or all, all sorts of structures are not just encoded in politics. They're encoded in attitudes and cultures and ways of life and, and self-concept. Um, and so that's why I think the whole progressive liberal divide misses that, that larger pattern by grabbing only a piece of it and therefore never really getting to, to, the, to, the, to the heart uh, of the battle because we're just fighting skirmishes on the edge. And, and meanwhile, these kind of diabolical patterns of life, patriarchy, um, other sorts, you know, systemic racism and so on and so forth, all of those things just kind of persist um, over time. And, and we seem baffled about why that is. And I think it's largely because we have missed the unseen components and um, fight fight these smaller battles that leave the whole unchanged.
1: There's There's also the underlying attitude that if I were just in charge or if people just like me were in charge, there wouldn't be a problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there, there is a, a, a temptation to, to uh, kind of place yourself in your own social location, your own viewpoint as, as, as a location, like the reference point that every, every battle has to be fought from. And so um, that, that's where like spiritual virtues like humility come in. Um and also mercy and forgiveness and love of love of the enemy. those are those are things that really give us pause when our moral righteousness is burning at a really hot temperature.
1: yeah, that we're all we're all more sinning than sinned against to uh, to paraphrase Lear.
0: oh yes, yeah
1: conservatives though often as as we've discussed have this vision of spiritual warfare that looks very much like the frank peretti novel it's it's it is lacking a uh, understanding of the visible manifestations of evil so maybe we've already covered this but what do you think um conservative christians can learn from liberal christians
0: well i definitely think as we said i think they can they can know and, and i try I tracked this through the book a little bit um it is the, the political manifestations of spiritual power all the way from the from the very beginning of the Old Testament down to the New Testament? There's always been a political aspect to the demonic that I think conservatives, when they over spiritualize, when they see demons as disembodied agents that are floating around in the air, they just miss the systemic and political aspects because if you, you can follow this through the Scripture that. The demons originally were, were the were the gods of pagan nations, um, the idols that the pagan nations worshipped, and the idols of the pagan nations, the gods of the pagan nations, um, become kind of the demonic um, as we move into the New Testament. But what's important about that is it's not just idolatry that's being critiqued in a criticism of um, the. the the worship of demons or the worship of idols. But the pagan nations are also described as locations of violence and oppression. And so that the kingdom of God isn't just about the worship of the one true God. It's also about the establishment of shalom and the kingdom of God and justice um, raining down upon us as well. And so to me, that's what concerns tend to miss. They they tend to so spiritualize spiritual warfare that they're worried about boogeymen. And they're not paying attention to city hall. The the other thing I would say that conservatives need to listen to when they over spiritualize it is they turn uh, spiritual warfare into something very exotic and almost occult. And there can be a, a morbid fascination about that realm that I think can be really really unhealthy. Um, let let alone the theological problems that I think are created. Like I I don't I think conservatives who worry a lot about demon possession, and they will describe every temptation or every spiritual or spiritual um, battle they're, they're, they're struggling with as a, a manifestation of a demon of lust or a demon of this or a demon of that. But I also think it's really problematic that if you have a robust theology of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells the person in the community of Christ, which should be something impervious to demon possession. It be Jesus a says word. that,
1: right? He says you have to tie up the rich man before, the, the strong man, before you rob yeah. his house.
0: Yeah, and so to me, when I spend time on the margins, kind of the the, the worry or the fascination with demons afflicting the people of God, I, I just find that very unbiblical. Um, and, and so that's another access, I think, that you see from that Frank Peretti strain of, um, of vision of spiritual warfare. I mean, it makes for a great novel, but I think it makes for really bad theology. Um, but the, the, that somebody who's indwelt with the Holy Spirit shouldn't have much worry about demons, um, you know, uh, indwelling them. And so the idea of constantly seeking out deliverance ministries to get demons cast out of you, as a believer, I just find really goes against the grain of Scripture. And so to me, those are some of the excesses on the conservative side, where we've created a whole cottage industry of spiritual warfare, where people are describing what's going on with them on a day-to-day basis as being attacked or afflicted by demons. They need to go seek out prayers of exorcism or prayers of deliverance. Um, I, I think that can be a real um, bad path to go down.
1: It also leads to a kind of political quietism. Like, um, I'm thinking about guns a lot lately. Like I think we all are. And, and every time there's a mass shooting, you hear conservatives say, it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. And then, like, the, whatever your feelings on gun control, they, the conversation stops with it being a heart problem. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we work on some sort of social institutions to help fix the heart problem? You know, there, it, seems like there's, it seems like there's a quietism that comes from conservative views on spiritual warfare.
0: Oh, yeah, most definitely, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about seeing the whole pattern. Um, You know, social structures and cultures create heart problems. Heart problems just don't emerge out of nowhere. They they are formed. Hearts are formed, and they're developed. You imbibe values and worldviews and cultures. So hearts are created, and and the thing is those cultures and patterns and economies and worldviews and values predate you. They they were there. you, you, as an English professor, know language is there before you can learn how to speak. Right. And encoded in language are ways, are ways of thinking. You are, born, you are born into a world that creates – that's going to form and create your heart. Um, and yet it's also true that, um, that, that people do have the freedom to make their choices. And, and that's, to me, the tragedy when we approach things like evil is how we have tended to see these two things as really not connected at all when they're very much reciprocally causing each other all the time. Hearts are causing systems to persist, and systems are causing hearts to be formed in ways that cause the systems to persist. Um, And and it seems like progressives and liberals are are ill-equipped to grab that entire complex thing. We're too quick to simplify and be overly reductionistic about the causes um, of what's going on in the world
1: are conservatives wrong to believe in demons as personal entities
0: no no and i write i write my book in such a way that 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 is a belief that can fit um alongside and within the treatment uh, that i offer um so i wrote in such a way i don't think it's wrong and and i and i have myself not had any like personal experience with something i describe as demonic and i've i worked for many many years and i psychiatric hospital. So I've seen some pretty extreme um, things, behavioral things, but nothing that I, I nothing I thought didn't make sense from a psychiatric perspective. And yet I have friends, some have been missionaries and some are my friends out of the prison or um, at Freedom that, that describe, and they're credible witnesses, um, things that they would encounter, have encountered that they would say would be the manifestation of a demon. And so uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not quick to dismiss that. Um, and, and so the book honors that as a perspective, but it's also trying to honor a person like, like me that says, I, I don't really know. I've never seen anything like that. I don't really know if I really believe that. And, and although it's hard to, 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 to bridge those two into a common conversation, the book is going to try to do that. So I don't think they're wrong for believing that. I do think there are temptations on both sides of the ledger. Um, I think there are temptations, and we've already talked about, that um, each needs to attend to, um, but they're not wrong too.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that maybe what we should be thinking about is, to return to Scooby-Doo, once you've pulled the ghost outfit off and it's just the curator, you could pull the curator outfit off and there is some sort of evil force, whether it's a personal entity or not, underneath him. Not, not in the sense that he is himself a demon, but in the in the in the sense that he is he is existing in a social structure that pushes away from the kingdom of God.
0: Oh yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I think that's right. Exactly right.
1: Well, I want to return to that Christus Victor attitude you talked about earlier. It's sometimes called the ransom theory of the atonement or the, the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, and I, I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that because my experience with evangelicals is that the atonement theory of the crucifixion, which is formulated maybe not for the first time, but certainly most vividly by St. Anselm in like the 11th century, most of us are so deeply rooted in that atonement theory that we're unaware that there's even other options. And, and when we think there is, it's the Christ is an example option, which I, I think is pretty clearly biblically unsound. So this ransom theory you you bring up, uh, I, I think explains evil much better than the atonement theory. So I'd, I'd like you to go into a little more detail about that, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah. So I mean, the 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 substitution theory from Anselm. Most most people know, right? So you know we're sinners. Um, God's a holy God, and to satisfy His justice, He uh, requires a, a you know blood sacrifice. And so Jesus lovingly substitutes Himself in my place, and so His death substitutes for mine. And therefore, if I believe in believe in his death and, you know, say the sinner's prayer, then I get access to that. Great. Um, but like you point out, for the first thousand years of the Church, that was not the dominant viewpoint. The dominant viewpoint amongst the Church Fathers, and it seems to be the dominant viewpoint in Scripture itself, is that um, what we're saved from isn't from the wrath of God, a bloodthirsty wrath of God, but what we are saved from um, slavery to, bondage to. Um, dark cosmic forces, and Paul describes them in a variety of ways. Um, sin is often described as a force that that binds us. It's, sin isn't necessarily a mistake, but there are times when Paul writes, particularly in Romans, sin seems to be a power um, that flows through um, the world. Uh, death is also there. It's describing the last enemy. So death is this power. Um, so Paul talks about how he wants to be rescued from this body that is subject to death. And so death seems to be a power. And then on top of all is is the devil. Um, So sin, death, and the devil is kind of an unholy trinity of these cosmic forces that hold us in bondage, and and we're stuck. We just lack the capacity to set ourselves free from that. So Jesus enters the world, and through the incarnation and his death and resurrection— um, um, rescues us, emancipates us. So that's where Christus Victor comes in. Jesus um, defeats these cosmic powers. He holds now the keys to death. Satan has been bound. The strong end has been bound. And because of that, um, the King of God had begun breaking into what, what Galatians calls this present evil age. Um, and, and therefore the King of God is, it's not here yet, but it is breaking in because those forces have been defeated. And so, the atonement in this case is ransom theory. It's an ancient idea that Satan kind of held humanity in bondage. And this is the best, I guess, way to get your head around this is the Blind the Witch in the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis, where Aslan sets Edmund free, who betrayed his family, um, from the power of the White Witch. So Aslan dies to satisfy the White Witch, not. Um, a deity above, and so the death of Jesus is, is actually brought about by Satan. Satan is the one that kills Jesus, thinking that through his death um, he would be defeated. But, like in the language in the wardrobe, um, the white witch is wrong. Satan is wrong. Jesus shames the powers upon the cross, um, and because of that victory, um, we are liberated from sin and death, and uh, bondage to the devil. That's Christus Victor atonement.
1: And, and it, it keeps us from having to see God as simultaneously the, uh, the Redeemer and the judge. Right?
0: right. He, so God's not of, fighting himself. Right, exactly. I think lots of people are attracted to Christus Victor theology um, because God's actions are wholly nonviolent. In, in this. Aslan is wholly nonviolent. It's the witch that's violent. The witch is the one who kills Aslan in this story. And in Christ's Victor, Atonement, it's, it's, the, it's the principalities of powers. It's Satan that, that kills Jesus. Um, it's evil that kills Jesus. Um, but G- through Jesus's love, and importantly here, the resurrection. And the resurrection plays a much more important role than the crucifixion in in Christus Victor. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Um, In the the satisfaction theory, it's the crucifixion that saves us. But in Christus Victor, it is is Jesus' resurrection that he shames the powers and defeats the powers through his love on the cross, and that love is vindicated on Easter Sunday. And it's that vindication that he is brought back to life after giving his life the sacrifice. So Jesus dies a death on the cross. This is Philippians. And because of that God highly exalts him. And so what saves us is the incarnation, God entering into the cosmic drama to save us. Yes, the crucifixion, but also the resurrection. So all three of those are really important when we see God is executing a great rescue operation for a captive and enslaved humanity.
1: While we're talking about explaining evil, you also suggest that Christians have been approaching theodicy, the problem of evil, um, incorrectly. What's the problem with trying to justify the ways of God to men, as Milton puts it in Paradise Lost?
0: Yeah, no. Uh, so, a, a third reason I wrote the book, um, you know, one was to connect us back to Jesus, um, two was to help liberals kind of interface with the spirituality of the margins. But the third reason, were just my own struggles with the problem of suffering. Um, you know, I'm a college professor, and I spend a lot of time uh, counseling college students who are struggling with their faith. And time and time again, the number one reason why they say they struggle with God and with faith is the problem of suffering or the problem of evil and um it's been my own struggle like i think it's the biggest obstacle to faith that there is yeah and so it's not that i it's not that i deny the need to give some theodicy some explanation for why evil exists but what i noticed for myself and for these students is that we had turned evil into an intellectual puzzle to be solved it became a logical puzzle how can a good god all powerful who loves us you know, allow evil to exist, and how do you get that syllogism to work? And you get kind of stuck in your head, trying to trying to square the circle. And I think anybody who spent any time with that question um, and is really, I, I think, pushed hard on it, because a lot of the theodicy answers that are offered from the fall of Adam to the rebellion of Satan to free will um, struggle with those answers. They they. they Maybe explain a bit of it, but, but there aren't, at the end of the day, wholly satisfactory. Um, but what struck me, and, and Greg Boyd's book, God at War, Greg's a pastor and a theologian wrote a book, God at War. Um, his argument in his book, and it really struck me, and it led me to kind of my own journey to write my own book on this topic, was how he said that, that the scriptures seem kind of stubbornly and frustratingly unconcerned with origins evil, that, that as, as the drama of the Bible opens, the, this cosmic rebellion is just kind of taken for granted. You get hints here and there, but for the most part, um, you it's like you're dropped into the middle of a war zone. Um, there's already a fight ongoing, and, and the only theodicy that the Bible gives you is a theodicy of uh, revolt, a theology of revolt, Greg Boyd calls it. Um, the only... The only response to evil that we're given in Scripture isn't intellectual or theological. It's behavioral. It's, it's um, a call to action. And, and so – and I think w- that's what gets lost when we lose the cosmic battle narrative. Um, when we approach evil, when we lose that cosmic battle narrative, we reduce the problem of evil to apologetics. to to giving and receiving the best answers we got. And I think that's okay. So I would not say I'm against that. But um, at some point, you're going to have to leave those answers to the side, step out of your front door, and engage the suffering of the world directly rather than getting stuck in your head with all of these dark nights of the soul. And and, And it just seems like to me a lot of Christians are wrapped up in their head, stuck with their doubts, and they're not getting out and going to a prison or going to a food bank or befriending somebody um, who's homeless. Um, and so to me, at some point, the Bible is calling us to do something about suffering, not to think about it some more.
1: I mean, you wonder if that's part of why James says that faith without works is dead, that, that faith without works ends up being this kind of ivory tower, intellectualized faith that can't sustain itself. Not so much that you're not justified if you don't have works, but, like, faith requires works in order to exist.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a, a constant temptation. One of the things I love about Christianity is is it is a rich, vibrant, intellectual tradition. I mean, I love it. I I, I think the theology from the Fathers up to modern contemporary theology, the, the diversity of it, the liberal, the progressive side of theology, I love all of it. I think it's, it's a beautiful— I, you spend your whole life exploring the intellectual riches of Christianity. And yet I think Christians struggle a great deal with always reducing faith to doctrine. And progressives have their own doctrine. I mean, here's the thing liberals have their own orthodoxy.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and
0: they have the and they have their own heresies. For example, we were taught penal substitutionary atonement. Like for progressives, that's the worst thing in the world. Um you know, you can't believe that as a progressive Christian that you know the idea that there's a bloodthirsty God into sacrifice. I mean, it's normal in evangelical circles, but there are orthodoxies on both sides, and, and, and we we see this on social media a lot. We we spend a lot of time monitoring the beliefs of everybody. You know, we we worry about what conservatives believe about that, and they worry about what liberals believe about that, and it reduces Christianity to God talk, making sure all the God talk. Is correct, according to some orthodoxy. And, and all the while, you know, you have Matthew twenty-five rumbling out there saying, "Hey, you know, clothe the naked, visit the sick, like do those things." And then, and then, yeah, we can we can go to Starbucks afterwards and get a cup of coffee and kick around theology. But let's not get the baby. Let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. Get the cart before the horse. I don't know what metaphor I'm using. <laughs> <laughs> If that, if that makes sense it does yeah you it know, makes it makes total think, sense christianity has to be a call to action and, and theology to me is support should support the action not not replace it
1: so, so much of christianity seems to me to be a collection of binaries that you have to hold onto both sides at once because I mean, if you have if you have works without faith, yeah. if you have works without faith, Christianity becomes this kind of social club, you know, or it becomes right. It, it becomes a para-government organization without any real connection to to uh, historic Christianity. But then, as you say, if it becomes nothing but a his- collection to historic Christian intellectual thought, you're you're nothing. You're you're dissolving yourself. Um, I don't know. I've lost track of my own metaphor there.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, I think we're tempted by that. I, I think everything right now in contemporary Christian discourse is tempting us um, to, into one of those binaries. Um, and um, and uh, that's why I think it's real important to go back to the point you made earlier about speaking truth back to yourself. I think that's the only way to keep the situation fluid is, is to is to question, question the things you kind of think are fundamental and realize that I, I might be um, – simplifying something here, I might be missing something here, um, and that there might be some truth on the other side of this conversation that I might need to listen to and be in conversation with. Yeah, I think it's Christianity is about maintaining a lot of dynamic and creative tensions um, and, and moving back and forth between them.
1: Well, but between the time I read this book and uh, our conversation today, my wife and I went to Montreal and we went to the uh, Holocaust. Memorial there, and so I've been thinking a lot about what you talk about here about evil being a kind of Zeitgeist. I mean, it's a it's a German word, the the time ghost. It it refers to this overwhelming movement in a given culture, and I, I'd like to hear more about uh, our own Zeitgeist of evil, the things that we need to resist, uh, and probably on both political sides, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, well, that's. A- that's a that's that's a dangerous conversation to get into. Our own zeitgeist. I, I think one of the zeitgeists I see um, um, amongst Christians today is um, I think Foucault called it statism, just a belief that the state is the solution to all of our problems. I think and Republicans right seem to believe now, that as
1: much as Democrats right now, which is crazy. Oh, exactly.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I think. Um, I think that's why um, our political campaigns are so violent rhetorically with each other, um, because I think uh, we believe that we have to get it right. Like, like it will be the apocalypse if we elect the wrong person. Um, it's all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our fears are caught up into the mechanisms of the state. And so both liberal, both liberal and conservative Christianity right now are highly, highly politicized. And, and to me, that's a bit of, a tr- bit of the tragedy um, in, in contemporary Christianity is that we have um, kind of traded in the kingdom of God for American electoral politics. I think that's um, one of the most – that's one of the zeitgeists, I think, um, that's going on right now um, that leads us into uh, – I w- would like to think that conservative and progressive Christians have a- more in common as brothers and sisters in Christ. Than it's currently being displayed on Facebook and Twitter. One um, would hope. <laughs> I would think, but but it seems like we have trouble finding, locating that that shared. And again, it's because I think we can demonize each other. We we we've reduced it to a struggle against these people, these conservative Christians or these liberal Christians, and they are they are the problem with the world. And so they are the ones that have to be defeated, at the polls, on Twitter, on we must win. We must beat them. That creates a really toxic environment. But it seems like to me, Jesus – it's not like Jesus didn't understand this. I mean he stepped into a world where the zealots knew <laughs> the Romans were the problem. You know, like he, like, he knew that, that there were these colonial occupiers, the Romans, and the zealots had a very clear you know, you know, vision of who the enemy was. And Jesus was somehow able to step in that very contested space – um, and 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 do something much more subversive, more subversive than I think liberals and progressives even realize. Um, by what he did, going from village to village, saying, the "Kingdom of God is in your midst already." Um, and and, and, and his walked. own his own disciples
1: acted that out, right? Because he had a zealot and a tax collector among the twelve. I, I mean, this this is the kingdom of God. This this enemies political enemies coming together for a higher theological purpose.
0: Yeah, I think the King of God is, yeah, it's more subversive than any of us ultimately suspect. There, there's always, just when you think you got the foundation of the Kingdom of God, Jesus is going to kick the props out from us and take you into a place that is really radically destabilizing. Um, and I think the polarized rhetoric of the zeitgeist of our current discourse, not just in America, but within the church itself, I, I think is is um, Jesus is calling us to a very different kind of, kind of kingdom, but one that is really, really cruciform, and I think that's why it's not very popular. Sure. Um, it, it's, it's, it's always going to be a very hard road, because um, one of the other things about zeitgeist to me is the moral self-righteousness that we get caught up in, you know, so much of the way we portray ourselves on Facebook or on Twitter or on our blogs is through a, a lot of moral signaling, making, you know, making sure that we are lined up publicly, you know, with the right causes and in the right way. And again, that idea of kind of demonstrating one's righteousness before people, it, again, is you know, Jesus explicitly called out that sort of behavior, um, you know, and then Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so, yeah, there's many, there's many, I think, so, so, to, to change a little bit, I think social media has its own back text. It has its own spirituality that I think creates a variety of temptations.
1: Have you read uh, Joseph Bottoms' An Anxious Age? I have not he's from the other side of the political spectrum from you I'm, I'm pretty sure okay. but uh, it's a it's a really interesting book because he talks about exactly what you're saying that that our every public interaction now has to be morally signaling we have to constantly tell everybody that we are supporting the right causes and he he says it's because he he says it's because of the collapse of a uh a civic religion essentially that that with once main mainline protestantism started to decline this was the only way we could we could demonstrate to the world that we deserved salvation
0: yeah Mm. yeah i do think yeah i think that's another zeitgeist in the church is that we're always addicted to a workspace righteousness um and i think progressives have their own workspace righteousness you know they have their own vision of what what you must do to be a good person um and I think conservatives have their own vision of what that looks like. but And there's a kind of a moralism that we're tempted into where everybody has to conform to an image of a good you – know, well, what a good person is, however you define it, to, to earn um, your way in, to have, have – and, and again, it seems so counterintuitive to um, the gospel of grace um, in, in, in Scripture. So – I was, you know, here's, here, for example, to speak against the moral signaling, I was talking to a person who um, got a lot of no, notoriety um, uh, on social media many years ago for taking a stand and, um, as, as, as LGBTQ affirming. Um, so they took this stand at their church and took a lot of heat for it. And, and I think, um, and so they they were kind of a pariah on social media amongst conservatives, but they were, you know, the, pastor was a hero to progressives and liberals. And I was visiting with him at a conference and and I was just talking about the fallout since he took that stand and kind of where he was finding life um, uh, outside of all of that social media drama. And he told me um, that he he had started doing um, uh, end-of-life visits um, for hospice for uh, homeless people. So it's like people who are about to die and um, they have nobody in their life. Like they don't, they're, they're complete. they have no family or friends to sit with them in their final moments to die. And so as a pastor, um, he put himself on a list as somebody that could be called to sit by a person um, as they die. Um, as the only person that will sit there and hold their hand and pray with them and talk to them about, about their lives and he said that's where he had found the most life-giving things in his life is just doing that and one of the things that taught him is, is how helpless he was he could there was nothing he could do to fix this to, to um and, and that but he learned to just sit to just the, sitting with and being with this person was holy ground for him and you know what that doesn't Make for good Twitter fodder. No, that sitting next to a dying person. I mean that that is not going to be anything anybody wants to do on a regular basis. There's not going to be fiery Twitter storms about that kind of thing. But to me, that was just that unseen ministry that he was doing. They got no attention at all from anybody. Um, To me, was as a profound example of the kingdom of God breaking into the world um, as taking a position publicly on Facebook about a contentious issue. Um, so yeah, the other that's the other problem, I think, with social media, is that the unseen, hidden, humble work of visiting the sick and the prisoner and befriending somebody who is lonely, um, that's not interesting to us um, as a culture, and I hate the shame.
1: I'm not sure it's ever been interesting to any culture.
0: You know that's probably true.. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> but to me, that's the subvers- that's the subversive activity of the kingdom, um, the the small little things that uh, m- make the world um, human again. You know I-, I talk when I talk to the prisoners, they live in a really horrible place, you know, completely dominated by by darkness and um uh and and I care about capital punishment, you know i you know i I do my own activism there to end capital punishment. I'm concerned about mass incarceration, like politically i'm I'm happy to fight those fights. but if you ask the men out to prison what's the most powerful moment of their week, um, it's when my friend Herb and I stand in line, and as they walk in, we give them a hug like. That hug, they wait the whole week for that because the guards aren't going to hug them, sure. and the inmates themselves don't really hug. The inmates themselves don't hug because displays of affection in there are um, potentially dangerous, and so it's the one place they can just relax into their own humanity. And so, again, I think if we over-politicize the social justice issues, and I think those are important. You know, I, I, I see some injustices amongst some of these men about why they're in there for so long. Um, there was a young man that was, I met last week. Um, um, he's 18, and he's, he's in there with life without parole. You know, um, That's it. He's going to die in prison. I don't know, an 80-year-old man. He's 18 right now. He's going to spend most of his life, over 70 years probably, incarcerated. I mean I see things like that, and it makes my blood boil. But I can't replace my activism for standing in line each week and giving him a hug. I, I, again, it's that false dichotomy that it seems like we get stuck in. It's either one or the other. I think it's both and.
1: Well, and, and to some degree, the activism's easier. You quote that Peanuts cartoon where Lucy says she loves humanity. It's people she can't stand.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well, here's the thing. I'm a college professor. You're a college professor, too. So, so we're, you know, I'm around a lot of liberals. And... And, and one of my great dissatisfactions with my, you know, liberal peers is the way that they they vote with the poor in their own minds, right? They vote with the poor. They vote with the marginalized. And yet, they couldn't name a homeless person in my town. They they have traded in political activism for relationality, um, for for friendships. With people, and and that has been the source of my, one of my great dissatisfactions with progressive Christianity is how it is traded in internet activism for actually opening up your home and your life and making margin um, for people in face to face relationships. And I think that's one of the geniuses of the church, too. Is it is it's it's a hard thing. Uh, to go to church. Um, it's a hard thing to kind of be with people who don't agree with you and all sorts of things. Um, but the discipline of being pulled out of yourself to be in relationship with people who are very different from you. They come from different walks of life, different educational strata, different economic strata, different ethnicities. At least in my church, we're also very politically diverse. And we have to just recover what we have in common um, despite the fact that one of us was watching Fox News last night and the other one was watching MSNBC like we have we have deeper things in common than what we watch on cable news every night
1: One of my favorite churches I've ever been involved with we had this men's group and I mean the the political spectrum was enormous uh, we had people who were I, I think probably basically marxist and then people who uh would have voted for George W Bush for a third term if uh if they had the uh, if they'd had the option happily yeah. And, and it was we, it's not like we didn't argue. You, you know, the, oh, yeah. the, those fights were there, but, but um, there was the sense that we all at least liked each other, if not loved each other.
0: Yeah. No, I have to tell one of my best friends um, on my campus uh, uh, is an English professor, Cole Bennett, and he's a fierce libertarian, you know. And uh, we, we fought over the Affordable Health Care Act all the way tooth and nail through that whole the whole process, you know. And uh, we deeply care about each other as friends. but and see, I love those debates. Uh, for some reason, I love free willing political, um, back and forth. You know, I learn things and and I'm I'm, I'm given pause by his arguments. and, and but it, but the thing is you've got to be in a relationship with people for those arguments to even be had. And I think one of the sad things about us is that we aren't in relationship with people with views different from us. We've created echo chambers, um, online or in our own sphere of influence that we're just, we're just talking to each other and, and we're not in relationship with people with very, very different views from us. And again, so again, I think that's one of the geniuses of the church, is how it throws us in together, um, where we have to be family despite political differences.
1: Well, I've been steering this conversation so far, but in the spirit of hospitality on Christian Humanist Profiles, we'd like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we talked about today that you'd like our listeners to know?
0: I think um, I, th- I think the one thing that, that some people have pushed back about the book on, and that I didn't really get into, is, is that they, they have some concern about uh, rehabilitating the devil because they've often seen um, the devil as a, an excuse for bad behavior that, and this is the devil made me do it, you know, kind of thing that we've all heard. Um, and, and and to me, um, what I'm trying to, to draw out of the conversation is that when we see, um, patterns of evil and injustice and cultures and worldviews and zeitgeist play it, it does it does create empathy when we look at other people um who we might disagree with that that we can see ourselves in those their situations that evil isn't just bad bad people doing bad things that we're all somehow complicit and we can all falter and I, so i think there's a way to think about this to create empathy um for other people you know there but for the grace of god go i go i um but I do hear the concern that appeals to the devil, um, as a way to absolving oneself from moral responsibility is problematic. And my response to that would just simply be that I think what spiritual warfare is calling you to do is fight the good fight. Um, and if you're saying the devil made me do it, that is symptomatic of you're not fighting the good fight. You're kind of right. laying down passively and not engaging in the struggle. And so to me, the, the, the big theme of the book is, is that compassion and gentleness and the cruciform way of Jesus is a daily, effortful struggle. And um, it's not easy to love your enemy. It's, it's not easy to make margin in your life for very messy and complicated relationships. It's, it's not easy to be patient when somebody is politically disagreeing with you. Those are very, that's very hard work. It's a battle. It's a fight. And to me, the way of Jesus is, is a passionate call to that fight um, to engage in that daily uh, resistance so that the kingdom of God can be established on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so, yeah, I don't think you use the devil as a way of getting off the hook. Um, you, you use spiritual warfare as a way of getting off the couch and getting in the game.
1: We're not saved by our innocence anyway. So, why right. get off the hook? <laughs> you know What good is it going to do you? Yeah, that's true.
0: Excellent point.
1: Well, thanks so much for appearing on the show, Richard. Um, Richard Beck's new book, Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted, is available now from Fortress Press. We'll have a link to that in the show notes on christianhumanist.org. Uh, Christian, Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.